up in verse 18, Romans chapter 8. We studied a little bit of it last week, and uh, uh, jumping over really verse 18 and verse 24 and 25, which will make the focus of our study this morning. But uh, we'll read it again in its entirety once again. Verse 18, Paul said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Christians, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word as always. We thank you for um, what we see in a passage, even as we would read it and understand it. We thank you for how multifaceted your word is and how powerful it is. We acknowledge how important it is to you. We acknowledge how important it is to us and our life and our relationship with you. And we pray that you would open these verses up to us and that they would uh, insert little pieces, Lord, into our Christian life that are needed in order for us to experience the fullness of all that is ours in Christ. Lord, we pray for each person that stands before you this morning that doesn't uh, know you yet, and we pray that you would uh, bring conviction of sin, Lord. There's none of that in the world that has to come from you, and not merely to convict them of sin, but in order that they would repent and turn to your Son and enter into the salvation that is the most glorious gift anyone can receive. And we pray that that miracle of your Holy Spirit would occur as needed in this room today. We surrender ourselves now as we continue to worship you in the study of your word. Speak to us, we pray. Continue to fashion us, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> this morning I want to complete uh, the, our study of these, uh, these verses here and the second part of what is a two-part series that I've entitled Insights into Suffering. And last week as we examined suffering, we examined, uh, first of all, what it uh, is. We also examined its origin in, uh, in both the world and also in uh, the human condition, that it had its origin in the sin or the fall of Adam and Eve in that ancient Garden of Eden when they violated God's lone prohibition to them not to partake of uh, and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they deliberately disobeyed that, introduced sin into the human condition and into the world, and the suffering is a consequence of, of all of that. We talked also about the universality of 
uh, suffering as a result of that sin and that fall, how it has entered into and corrupted the creation that is all around us, how it has come to bring uh, sorrow and to bring uh, hardship into mankind as a whole. Uh, None of us escapes it, not whether we're a Jew or a Gentile or whether we are a Christian or a non-Christian. And then we also examine how it is that this fall of Adam and Eve and uh, this sin has introduced a groaning into the life uh, of Christians that is uh, even beyond what anybody else experiences in the fallenness of this world. We touched ever so slightly last, uh, lightly last week on uh, the subject of, of heaven in making the point that one day for us as Christians that suffering in all of its forms will be, at the moment that we entered into heaven, all of it will be instantly and fully lifted off of us uh, upon entering in there, and what a great relief and release that, that will be. And this morning we want to examine Uh, the Holy Spirit's instruction to us here uh, from verse 18, where Paul uh, speaks to us about a very, very vital uh, uh, key and piece of knowledge that we're to possess as Christians. It's very important to navigating the suffering in life. And And then in verses 24 and 25, the tremendous encouragement that he has for us there as well. Now, in chapter… in verse 18, the Apostle Paul instructs us uh, that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And he is writing uh, to Christians. Paul introduces the, this great truth in a way that I like in the, in, with the first three words of, of the passage, and, and he introduces it in the, old, in the New King James, for I consider... Um, uh, but in the old King James, I like it better. He writes it, and he says, for I reckon. And the new King James use of the word consider, it's completely acceptable. It's, it's accurate as far as it goes. But I like the old King James, for I reckon, because there's something about reckon. Uh, the word reckon, it possesses kind of an energy to it, 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 it a, a strength to it, a, a vibrancy and a life to what it is that Paul is trying to say here, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Now, the word reckon, as it's used here in the original language, it means to compute, it means to calculate, it means to weigh. And it's a word in, in, in the ancient world, in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek that was intended to uh, produce an image within the mind of anyone who would uh, hear that particular word reckon. And the picture that it's intended to produce within our minds uh, is the picture of the main instrument that was used in the ancient world for computing and for calculating and for weighing and for reckoning, and that instrument was a scale. And so you would go to the market and you would go there to buy grain or meat, and into one arm of the scale they would put a one-pound weight, excuse me, and then they would put your grain or your rice or your wheat, uh, and they would add to it on the other arm of the scale until they leveled out evenly, and then you knew you got a pound of grain. Well, what does Paul call upon us to place here in the opposite dishes of the scale that he's describing. 
And what he does is he calls upon each of us as Christians to place all of the suffering that is present in this current age, in this current time in human history, in, on a scale of the entire world, and to take all of that suffering and put it on the one side of the scale, and then to take all of the glory that will be revealed in us, the glory of heaven, and put it on the other side of the scale. But he's not just talking about worldwide. He's not just talking about all of the suffering in human history. There's a personal side of, uh, to what he's saying here as well. And he invites us, indeed he encourages us, exhorts us, to take all of the suffering that we have ever experienced in the course of our individual life, take all of the suffering that we are experiencing here uh, this morning, and that can be considerable suffering that is kind of amassed within, uh, within a person's life. And he says, take all of that suffering uh, that you've ever experienced in the course of your life and place it on the one side of the scale and then place the glory of heaven on the other side of the scale. And then he informs us uh, that if we were actually able to do that, that we would discover that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed uh, in us in heaven. And that's a, uh, that's a wow statement. I mean, the book of Romans is filled with some of the most famous verses in the entire Bible. And Romans chapter 8 is uh, uh, filled with gems in, a, in the midst of gems. And this verse 18 is one of those gems. He says, it's not worthy. And the idea is in, in comparison, our suffering would be like uh, uh, on dust on one side of a scale, no matter how great our suffering might be or that we've experienced, and then a million tons of weight uh, or glory on the other side of the scale. He's saying there is no comparison. And the New Living Translation gets it absolutely perfect, at least in this regard, when it translates the verse, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that will, uh, He will reveal to us later. And one of the things that's important to understand about the Apostle Paul when he makes a statement like this, and it is to know Paul from, uh, from the New Testament, when Paul makes a statement like this, he is not in any way, not even remotely entering his mind to at all minimize the greatness of the suffering that any of us and all of us can experience in this life and we will experience in this life. He is not minimizing the suffering. He is saying, take note of every bit of it, every single day, every hour, every uh, drop that you have uh, drunk from the cup of suffering in this life. And and, and don't miss a single bit of it at all. But when it's put in contrast to the glory that shall be revealed in us, that's what he's accenting here. That's what he's, he's trying to emphasize here, is, is the greatness of the glory that will one day be our portion uh, in, uh, in heaven. And it, and it is this truth, and it is a truth, 
This isn't just a verse in, in the Bible. It's a truth about both our suffering and the coming glory that we will one day be a part of in heaven as, as Christians. And this truth, this comparison of our suffering to coming glory, the reason Paul speaks it to us in the context of suffering is because knowing this as a Christian, knowing this is vital in, 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 to maintaining a proper perspective and a healthy perspective in the midst of very, very considerable suffering and, and fallenness that we experience in this world. When I think about this verse, I always think about a famous psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 73, and it was written by a, a worship leader by the name of Asaph, and a very, very godly man. And uh, as Asaph writes this psalm, he uh, and introduces it, he speaks about the prosperity of the wicked and uh, in general. And then he speaks about, in general, the suffering in his own age, but throughout history, the suffering comparatively of the righteous and the hardship of, of life for the righteous in comparison and, and the suffering and the unfairness uh, in the world. And he, as he contemplated this in life, he's a, he's, a, he's a Christian. He's an Old Testament saint. His eyes are wide open. He can't help uh, but observe the, the level of suffering that is, is a, so often meted out uniquely against the righteous in human history and how easy often uh, the, the powerful and the rich and the unrighteous get it, kind of like a, a, a seemingly a free pass on all of this. And it confused him. And he, and he openly declares, it's a, a psalm of tremendous uh, candor in trying to, uh, you know, grapple with these things. And, and he declares openly in that psalm that when he thought about this, he said he, his faith almost slipped under the weight of it. He, he said he was almost tempted there to, to conclude that it didn't pay to walk with God or to live a righteous life in the midst of this big fallen mess called the world. It just didn't pay. And what rescued him in that psalm, he reveals it to us, is that one day as he's grappling with all of this, the suffering of the righteous, the suffering within the world, is that one day he walked into the sanctuary of God. And in the sanctuary of God, through the Word of God, through the worship of God, as he enters in there, he was reminded of the life after this one. He was reminded of eternity. And then he began to process his suffering and suffering in general and this temporal life in the light of eternity as opposed to uh, judging eternity in the light of, of the, uh, the, the temporariness of this life. And he regained the perspective that's vital to every child of God in the midst of suffering and in the midst of, in a context of suffering. And he wrote about it in Psalm 73, verse 17. And as he spoke about this season in his life, and he said, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their end, that is of the wicked. And he said, surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment, they are utterly consumed with tears. Well, one of the things that a person might uh, think in the light of this, I mean, Paul makes a 
a very, very dramatic declaration of truth in uh, verse 18. Uh, it's a very, very strong. And in the light of the strength of the declaration, it wouldn't be uh, unfair, really, and unthinking of someone in the light of what he declares there to simply ask in their mind at least and say, well, who in the world made the Apostle Paul such an authority on suffering in this world and such an authority on heaven that he can write and produce a declaration such as this? And the answer is, very simply, in a word, God. God did. God made Paul an authority on both suffering and an authority on the glory of heaven. You might remember that concerning the sufferings and the trials that he endured in his own life, this is on top of the suffering that every human being deals with in life, talking about life and death and disease and heartbreak and everything that both the, the, the Christian and the non-Christian, every single person is, is affected by in life. But then beyond even all of that, the trials and the sufferings that he endured uh, by virtue of, of, of being called to do what he had been called to do as a Christian and in his calling in his life. And he reveals it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22. Allow me to read it for you. And here is his PhD in suffering. He said, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I've spent in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of the wilderness, in perils in the sea in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for all of the churches. It puts me out of breath to read it. I can't imagine what it must have been to live, what he describes uh, there in those handful of verses. And the fact of the matter is, if Romans chapter 8, verse 18 had been written by a nobility, by some blue blood in some ivory tower somewhere, if it was written in the privacy of some kind of a palace, you know, surrounded by uh, prosperity and surrounded by privilege, I mean, we'd immediately be skeptical about what in the world such a person could know at all about suffering. But when the Apostle Paul, as we know him through the Scriptures, makes this declaration, it gets our attention. And most of us will never know a fraction of these sufferings that Paul went through in our own lives. But he, he also was an expert on heaven, had an experiential knowledge uh, of heaven's glory. And he writes about that in 2 Corinthians uh, as well in chapter 12, verse 1. I'll read that for you as well. And it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, and he's describing himself. 
I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know. He says, I don't know whether I was taken directly into heaven or this was a vision that was given to me. Whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which are not lawful for a man to utter. And what the Apostle Paul does essentially in in making this declaration is he says to the church at Corinth, he says, not only would any attempt on my part to describe what I saw in heaven, would I fail to ever do it justice? He says, not only would I never attempt to describe what I saw, I won't even attempt to describe what I heard in that heavenly scene, because it would have the same result. I would simply mar it. If I tried to tell you what I saw, and you then tried to picture something in your mind, it would be so far away from what it actually is that I'd, leave you, I'd put you in more damage than, than to just leave you with the Holy Spirit to consider the glory of heaven coming. He said there is no language. There's no amount of education, even religious education, and he possessed all of that that can allow a human being, allow me to speak about what I heard there, much less what I saw there, and do it justice. I've seen them both, Paul declared in the Scriptures. I've experienced great, great suffering in this world, but I've also experienced the glory of heaven, and the suffering doesn't even compare with the heavenly glory that's in our future. No matter how great our suffering might be. And it is this reckoning, it is this calculation, it is this uh, comparison that governed and dominated Paul's personal life. And it was a key part of him navigating the suffering of his own life and the suffering in this fallen world to remain faithful as a Christian to God's call upon his life. And in terms of the glory of a coming heaven, we don't even simply have to take Paul's word for it, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself declared of heaven in John chapter 14, and he declared this to Christians. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, speaking of heaven, are many mansions or abiding places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And one of the things you look and say, well, what do I learn about heaven related to what Jesus just said there? We learned plenty. We learned that it is a prepared place for us. And that Jesus has been been preparing that place for us for 2,000 years. And I remember in the, the beauty of the early, early days of my Christian life when everything was new. And the very first time hearing someone declare from this passage about the fact that if God could create the heavens and the earth in six days, I mean the glory of it, the beauty of it, 
And Jesus is a part of that creation. What a, and, and here we see it even through in its fallenness. What in the world will heaven be like that he's been preparing for us for 2,000 years? It must really be something. It's really all we need to know about heaven, that it is a prepared place. And then the apostle John and the revelation, and he's writing, and you see the descriptions that that he makes related to heaven and his attempt to make uh, clear what it is that he saw in, in uh, uh, the vision that, that was, was given to him. And as he's writing, again, even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the whole book is filled in, in his descriptions of the heavenly scene with the word like. And I don't mean it in a valley girl kind of way but in a way that is, is functional, in a way that's intended to, to communicate something uh, to us. And, and every time he tries to describe something, he can't describe it in, uh, accurately and, and say, this is absolutely what it is. He said, it's kind of like this. When he describes God the Father in Revelation chapter 4, he said, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow about the throne in appearance like an emerald. As he describes the glassy sea that is before that throne in that same chapter of Revelation, he said, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. As he attempted to describe the angelic beings that are a part of that heavenly scene and around the throne of God, he said, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back, and the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And he's trying as he's seeing this description of heaven and to somehow put it in a language that people can begin to even scratch the surface of understanding it on planet, uh, planet earth. And this is what he's grappling with, to find some common denominator between heaven and earth. And he almost can't find a common denominator, not one common denominator, between heaven and the fallenness of this earth to say that when that what you experience on her on earth that is an accurate representation of what will be true in heaven he can't do it and so he uses the word like over and over and over again i remember the f- first time i ever traveled to india many 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 years ago uh now and uh, this was a long time ago, and India has really, really modernized in, in the last few decades. And we were there uh, prior, prior to that aggressive modernization that has occurred. But as we went there and traveled around, and, and we were there for three weeks' time and uh, only came into contact with a, a phone two days before we were ready to return, and when I returned, people would ask and say, can you tell me a little bit about uh, what it was uh, like there in, in India? And I found it so hard to describe because the culture of India and the culture of the United States at that time was so separated 
to take something and say, here is something about India that is exactly like the United States, or here's something about the United States that is exactly like India. It was impossible to do at that time. And all I could do is what, what the Apostle John did and say, well, what they do there related to this is kind of like what we do here in the United States, only this. But there was no common denominator. There was no means of, uh, no overlap between the two cultures and the two nations to, to uh, you know, give a clear uh, description. The gap was so great between the cultures and the societies. I think one of the great frustrations that people sometimes have, Christians do, with the Bible is that it doesn't tell us as much about heaven as we'd like to know. And uh, Paul tells us one of the reasons uh, that, uh, for that is that it's simply indescribable. It's indescribable. And then I remember listening years and years ago by a sermon by Vance Havner. And these, Vance Havner has long ago entered into the glory of heaven. Uh, an old uh, country uh, teacher and preacher from North Carolina and no Christian should ever leave their pilgrimage in this life without uh, going online and streaming at least one Vance Havner, uh, Havner sermon uh, in their life. But he spoke this about, uh, speculated about another reason why there's so little spoken to us of heaven in the Scriptures. He said, there are a lot of questions the Bible doesn't answer about the hereafter. But I think one reason is illustrated by the story of a boy sitting down to a bowl of spinach when there's a chocolate cake at the end of the table. He's going to have a rough time eating that spinach when his eyes are on the cake. And if the Lord had explained everything to us about what is ours to come, I think we'd have a rough time with our spinach down here. And I don't doubt that at all. A key to navigating and to managing the suffering of this world and this life is to process it in the light of our coming entrance into that heaven and to realize that as a Christian that one day we are going to stand there. Little old you, little old me as a Christian, we are going to stand in the midst of all of that glory. And the thought of one day uh, returning to that glory it blessed the heart of Jesus as he faced the horror that he was facing there in the, in the suffering of the cross and all the other suffering that was beyond even the cross on the day of his crucifixion. And you think about the impact of, of, uh, of, the, uh, of, of that, that glory that it, and what it had even upon him. And on the night before his crucifixion, he prayed in John chapter 17 that great high priestly prayer to the Father, and he said, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Talking about the glory of heaven. And then as he hung upon the cross, we aren't given much in the Gospels in terms of understanding what was he thinking about on the cross. What was he holding on to? What was he processing? What was he feeling on the cross? And the writer of the book of Hebrews gives us a glimpse of it. In Hebrews chapter 12, the thoughts that filled his mind, at least a portion of the thoughts, 
when he wrote and said, and therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us set aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And then here it is, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy of glory, the joy of returning to that, the joy of returning to the right hand of the Father, and who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And when I think about the glory of heaven and the suffering of this life, and the fact that they're not worthy to be compared one with the other. I always think about a poster that a family who attended our fellowship years ago before moving to another part of the United States, a poster that was in their entryway. And it was a picture of Jesus. You couldn't see his face, but you knew it was Jesus. And then the caption on the poster was, I didn't say it would be easy. I said it would be worth it. And that's very much what Paul is, is declaring here in, in, this, uh, in this passage. We don't seek out suffering for the sake of, of glory, but when suffering comes into our lives as Christians, we're to have this mindset that this, all of this is one day going to give way. In its entirety, it is going to give way to an indescribable glory. There is an observation in verse 18 that is very, very important to notice. And, that when, and notice that when Paul declares this glory, uh, he declares that it shall be revealed in us. He does not say that this glory shall be revealed to us. It will be revealed to us, but that's not all that will happen. Uh, the fact that this glory will be revealed in us is a greater truth than the fact that one day we are in, when we're in heaven that this glory will be revealed to us. It's the greater thing. In other words, when we enter into the glory of heaven one day, heaven isn't going to be one thing in terms of glory and us something entirely different, something entirely uh, inferior. Uh, where we're going to be up in heaven sticking out like a sore thumb in terms of holiness, where we'll walk around the place and feel uncomfortable about who and what we are in, in, the, in, uh, in, in this new and wonderful environment. Now, what Paul is saying is that one day when this life is over, we're going to receive a new body, and it's going to be made for the perfection of heaven, and it is going to possess a glory that is on a par with heaven. It is going to, it is going to be a body, and we ourselves as a result, we will not in any way detract from the glory of heaven, but we will be a part of it. Uh, we will be an influence for it in, in, in heaven and for eternity. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. I'll read it to you. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. 
This glory is not just going to be revealed to us. It is going to be revealed in us. I don't even know how to get my head around that as a Christian, except that I can understand it to the degree that I can understand it in this life, and I know it's going to be fabulous one day in the life to come. Now, Paul closes this this particular section on on, uh, suffering with an encouragement there in verses 24 and 25, with an encouragement to expectation concerning this day and anticipation of this day. And for this to be uh, looking forward to look th- this great hope within our life, the confidence of heaven, for that to be something that is a, something that is a part of our perseverance within, uh, within our lives as Christians. In verses 24 and 25, Paul uses the word hope five times in those two verses. And it's important to realize that when Paul uses the word hope in the New Testament, it's not the way that we use the word hope in our culture. Uh, When we use the word hope in our culture, it's completely dominated by uncertainty. And so somebody says, one day I hope to do this. One day I hope to be this. And we listen to them speak and we realize that's a goal, that's an aim, that's a desire of their life, but the realization that because it's a hope that, uh, that, that that may never be accomplished within their life. It's something they're hoping for but probably won't uh, attain to, or maybe they will. When Paul uses the word hope in the New Testament, there's never any uncertainty about it at all. It is a confidence, an absolute confidence in a promise that God has given uh, to us. And, and when Paul uses that word hope, there's no sense of uncertainty about it at all. And he tells us, it's, it's so funny to read him sometimes, but he tells us that the only reason he refers to the fact that you and I as Christians are one day going to be in heaven. He says, the only reason I'm forced to use the word hope is because it hasn't happened yet. Not because there is any uncertainty associated with that hope at all. He says, the only reason I use the word hope is because it's yet in the future, in, in, in our lives. It is something that hasn't happened yet. But he says that this hope is so sure, again, is the case with any promise of God in the Scriptures. He says that we are to await our coming entrance into heaven, number one, with eagerness, and then with perseverance in verse 25. And I want you to notice in verse 24 that Paul writes that we are saved in this hope. He does not say we are saved by this hope. We are not saved by a hope of heaven. Uh, We are saved by virtue of having put our faith in Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins and being born again as a result of a a spiritual birth. That uh, That is the source of our salvation. That is what we're saved by. But he declares that we are saved in this hope. In other words, this hope of heaven, this confidence is already a part of our salvation. It's as sure as the forgiveness of our sins. It's a past. It's as sure as the power of God in our lives today and the presence of the Holy Spirit 
within our lives. It's something that is already ours, and we are merely awaiting this part of our salvation to unfold in God's timing, whether we enter into heaven in mass at the time of the rapture of the church. I'm voting for that. Uh, if, if there's an election, or whether we go individually, one, uh, one at a time, uh, entering into heaven. And, and finally here, one comment concerning Paul's encouragement to wait for this hope in the midst of suffering and to do so with eagerness and with perseverance there in verse 25. I think that it, I remember hearing years ago, I, I've only been able to see Warren Wiersbe teach in person one time. And that was at a pastor's conference in Southern California. And Warren Wiersbe, I just can't even think about how highly esteemed he is in the body of Christ. And a great Bible teacher at Moody Bible, and his commentaries have uh, served, I would guess, probably every pastor in the entire United States and world in terms of growing in, 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 in the understanding of the Scriptures and in sermon preparation. But one time I heard him talking about heaven and doing a sermon on heaven, and he declared what Paul declares here, and it's so important for us to realize as Christians, is that heaven is not just a destination, but it is also a, a, a motivation, and further, it's a preparation, that we are being prepared for this heaven. And Paul writes concerning this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Allow me to read this to you as well. He said, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Uh, somebody can say hallelujah in their heart, uh, if that's your condition here today. He said, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working. It's working. It's working. Hardship, suffering, trials, difficulty, it works. It's never a waste in the child of God. Is working for us a far more exceedingly and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In other words, Paul rejoiced as he looked at this suffering, he rejoiced at the spiritual depth and the character that suffering produced in his life as a Christian, and also how suffering was being used by God for the preparation, his preparation, Paul's preparation for a strong entrance into heaven, to enter into heaven one day and hear that, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord from the very lips of Jesus. And Paul realized that this suffering related to his life, that none of it was a waste, but that all of it was a part of one day when he did enter into that glory, for that to be a, 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 an entrance that was, uh, you know, on a, a, a strong entrance, a beautiful uh, entrance into heaven. Someone has said about uh, this life that we're living now before we get into heaven. Uh, the, the saying goes, lifetime is training time for reigning time. It was a little clever by half, but I still like it 
because it says something so important to me and to all of us as uh, Christians. All this life is supremely is not about how many Pepsis we can drink or how much pasta we can eat or how many cars we can own or cruises we can go on or family reunions we can go to. That's not what life is all about. All this life is about supremely is how it prepares us for heaven and how it provides us with the opportunity for an abundant entrance there and to await that entrance with eagerness and to, and to be prepared for the glory of heaven, number one, in putting our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and now being qualified by His blood and righteousness to even enter in there, but then to be prepared for it by walking faithfully to God in, in his, his calling and His Word in this life. And even when it brings suffering uh, within, within our lives as we persevere uh, through it, that all of that character that's being built into our lives in this life, spiritual depth and character, all of it is a preparation for entering into heaven. And somebody may say, well, it doesn't really matter. Are you going to get into heaven? We're all going to be perfect. Why sweat at this life? There's an indication in the Scriptures. I wouldn't, uh, you know, bet my salvation on it, but I wouldn't bet that on anything. But there is the idea, you know, where there's the reward in heaven and, and so forth, and, and that, well, how everybody's going to, you know, every Christian's going to be in heaven and so forth, and so why knock ourselves out obeying God and serving Him and sacrificing and going through all of this? And the idea is that what we do with our life here today in this life will determine our capacity to enjoy heaven when we get there. Everyone will enjoy it, but perhaps not everyone will enjoy it uh, to the same degree. And somehow this suffering that we go through and what we learn, the development of our character and our faithfulness to service and the rewards that are associated with all of that somehow translate in the eternal scheme of things and are about of our, a, a part of our preparation for uh, heaven. And I think it's wonderful, and as Paul would say, it's more than wonderful here as he, he writes it with the strength with, with which he does, that it's even necessary for each of us as Christians to realize that one day we are going to stand glorified in the perfect glory of heaven and that we possess a hope that is beyond this life. And we navigate this life with that hope, and that we possess a hope that is greater than any suffering or uh, compilation of the suffering that we will ever experience in this life. And I think that sometimes, you know, one of the, and, and in the midst of the suffering in this world and in our own personal lives, we need to remind ourselves that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed uh, in us. That all of this ends 
in an indescribable glory for us. And Jesus himself has promised to take us personally into that glory. Adam, I try not to correct all the old hymns, but it's not going to be a band of angels coming for to carry you home. The promise is better. It will be Jesus Christ himself, whether in the rapture or us individually. If you sit here this morning and you're not a Christian, and, and, and Paul here talking about hope, what hope do you have? What hope do you have? You have hope. You have to have hope. Nobody can survive without hope. If you don't have hope, bad things happen. So every single person in this room is living off of some kind of hope. But is it a hope that is strong enough to take you through the difficulty and the suffering of this life? and then ultimately to take you through uh, the death that comes to every single person? And is it a hope that compares to the hope that Paul speaks here, that God makes an offer to every single person in the world, the confidence that the suffering of this present time cannot be compared with the glory that shall be revealed? And God knows that every single person ultimately needs that hope, the hope that he provides for heaven. I just want to say lovingly to, to you and to someone who has been in your shoes as, as well, the hope that you have in life that is short, falls short of a hope and confidence of heaven is, is a hope that is going to fail you. And it won't just fail you at the moment of death. It will fail you in the course of this lifetime because God created us as human beings for a relationship with Him. He has created eternity and heaven within our hearts. There is a longing within us for that. There is a longing for a happy ending to all of this. We like happy endings in movies, but we long for a happy ending. And that longing for a happy ending and the happy ending that God describes uniquely in His Word is God-given. And only He can supply that hope to you that you will need in that hour, but also in this hour as well. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service, and they'd love to pray with you to make Jesus Christ your Savior this morning, and then to be able to navigate. It won't mean all your suffering will be gone. All difficulty will be gone. But now you'll have a hope in your life that is greater than anything you will ever face in this life and greater than what you and I will face even at the moment of death, the hope that God wants each of us to have and that he wants you to have as well. And it's all there for the asking and receiving as a gift from him today. Take advantage of God's offer to you. Let's stand together now and, and then pray. But before we pray, I want to do one final thing. I've been talking here up here for a while. You probably haven't noticed. But there's something about saying it ourselves.
that takes the truth of God's Word even more deeply into our hearts. Something about hearing ourselves declare God's truth. And so I'd like us to just say verse 18 out loud, and I'll just say a section of it out. You uh, read it after me, and uh, so we'll go through the verse. Again, this word that's going to outlive the heavens and the earth. Paul writes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray together. Yes, that's great. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful. You look at our lives and and uh, again, I get to the end of all of these studies, and, and I think the same thing. It, 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 who could know us? Who could know about our need for hope? Who could know about our need for a happy ending? Uh, Lord, who could know what we would need in our hearts and our minds to navigate the suffering of this world and to maintain not only perspective, but to maintain an eager expectation and a joy. Lord, nobody knows us the way that you know us, and we thank you for how richly you have provided for us, even this side of glory, in your Son and by your Holy Spirit. We bless you today that what is today a hope in our hearts and our minds will one day give, a, give way to reality. And, Lord, we look forward to that day. We cry out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly and keep us busy about your business as we await that day. And I pray and we pray for each person in deep, deep suffering and heartache and heartbreak today and and, and uncertainty in their life that you would make today's uh, sermon and this passage a, a rich Um, infinite comfort to them today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sunday nights we go through the